You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Cindy Johnson, award-winning volunteer for Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Hi, Cindy, and happy almost summer. (laughs) Hi, Jeremy. It doesn't really feel like summer yet, but yeah, I guess you're right. Almost feels like summer to me, but you just came from Arizona. True. So. <laughs> yeah, true. But I'm to be clear, I'm perfectly happy with this weather. <laughs> yeah, me too. It's perfect. It's like yeah. 70 and sunny. Perfect. Really nice. So today is June 4th, 2023, and this is episode 228 of Lighthearted. This podcast started on June 3rd, 2019. So happy anniversary to us. Wow. That's four years. Yeah. Well, happy anniversary to you. Four years and some 240 plus episodes. At, I know I just said it's episode 228, but there's been some uh, some unnumbered ones, too. Right. So, All yeah. together. Yeah. yeah. We wow. haven't missed a week yet. Wow. Today's episode has two segments. The first concerns the fascinating story of a keeper's daughter that was immortalized in the book Lighthouse Girl. Then we'll listen to a discussion with Mike Vogel and Jeff Gales of the U.S. Lighthouse Society discussing the Society's tours and other aspects of the organization's mission. First, Cindy, has anything interesting happened on this date in history? Yes. On June 4th, 1901, Connie Small was born in Lubeck, Maine. Along with her husband, Elson, Connie spent 28 years keeping lighthouses on the Maine and New Hampshire coasts. At the age of 85, she wrote the best-selling book, The Lighthouse Keeper's Wife. As a result of writing her book, Connie received hundreds of letters from all over the world, and she received citations from two presidents. She gave nearly 600 lectures and appeared on every major television network. This is from the last page in her book. Quote, May the sunrise bring you hope and inspiration, the sunset the comfort of a day well spent. Unquote. I'm very happy I got to know Connie in the 1990s before she passed away in 2005 at the age of 103. She loved lighthouses so much, and it made her very happy that people still care about preserving lighthouses and their history. We gave her a special award from Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses as a guiding light for us all to follow. And, of course, you can buy Connie Small's book, The Lighthouse Keeper's Wife, through the Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses website at PortsmouthHarborLighthouse.org. Yep, that's right. So as I mentioned, a little later, we'll hear a discussion of U.S. Lighthouse Society tours. But first, we're doing something a little different. Over the four years of this podcast, we've done hundreds of interviews. Some of them have been pretty long, as long as two hours or more. In some cases, I've broken the interviews into two or three episodes. I always hate to edit out much content from the interviews for two reasons. First, I find it all interesting, and I hope our listeners do too. But also, I see this podcast as sort of an ongoing oral history project. I like to think that the interviews become part of the historic record and that future researchers might actually find them of value. So I like to present them more or less unedited. But I realize that not everyone wants to listen to such long episodes, so I'm trying something new. I've taken an interview that was originally spread over two episodes back in January 2021, and I've cut it down to less than half an hour. You might say I've taken a full meal and cut it down to a tasty snack. Who doesn't want a tasty snack? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, my thinking exactly. We're revisiting an interview that we originally released, as I said, in January 2021 with Diane Wolfer, author of a children's book I consider a classic called Lighthouse Girl. Cindy, please help me introduce this segment. Sure, Jeremy. 
Diane Wolfer's 2009 book, Lighthouse Girl, won the West Australian Young Readers Book Award for picture books. Lighthouse Girl tells the poignant story of Faye Howe, who was the daughter of the lighthouse keeper at Breaksea Island in Western Australia. Around 30,000 soldiers left Australian shores to fight in World War I, and in late 1914, a fleet of 36 troop ships left Albany, bound for Egypt and Gallipoli. 15-year-old Faye was adept at signal communications, and as the men waited on their ships to leave Albany, she communicated with many of them using semaphore flags or Morse code. She relayed their messages to Albany, and from there they were routed to the men's families. The sight of Faye Howe waving to them from the island became a symbol of hope for the departing soldiers. For many of those men, their contact with Faye was their last connection to their home country. Dozens of them wrote cards and letters to Faye from overseas, sometimes addressed to the little girl on Breaksea Island. Around the time I spoke with Diane Wolfer, about two and a half years ago, I also spoke with Faye Howe's son, Don Watson. Don worked on a merchant navy ship as an engineer, and after retirement, he volunteered at the Fremantle Maritime Museum. In the chat I had with Don Watson via Zoom, his wife Peg and their daughter Denise Rafferty also joined in. Sadly, Don has passed away since I did the interview. So we're going to hear a new edited version of my conversation with Diane Wolfer, immediately followed by the chat with Don Watson. Let's listen to those conversations now. stories that that families wrote to their soldiers and backwards and forwards were so evocative that it had really captured my attention and I walk my dog on a beach that looks out across to Breaksea Island and I just kept imagining that little girl she wasn't that little she was about 15 and the story wouldn't let me go I suppose so that's how it started the story itself is told from two points of view so this first person and third person point of view which allowed me to go deeper so you've got the storyteller voice but you've also got her diary account which was a really useful vehicle for me to get into her head and capture that young woman on the cusp or child becoming a young woman at at this momentous time so there's all these layers in there and it, it just really did need that space so I was really fortunate and grateful to Fremantle Press who are a small independent publisher to not make it have to fit some industry standard to let it be what it needed to be. Mm. And I think that is part of the reason for its success because it was allowed the shape that it needed to have. Let's talk about Faye Howe a bit more. What made her so important to those soldiers leaving uh, Albany in 1914? She perhaps represented innocence and their families. So there was a girl in real life, her mother had died earlier that year and her big sister had died the year before. So not that they knew that. So there's a young woman, I guess, reminiscent of their daughters or sisters, um, the women in their life, those who were waving them farewell. It's like she waved them all farewell on behalf of the families uh, without taking it a step too far. They'd already been on their troop ships for a week. They could see the land. They were anchored right nearby, but they couldn't get off because Albany was a small town in those days. And I think having you know thirty thousand men suddenly <laughs> running around town logistically wasn't going to work. So they couldn't get off their troop ships. They were stuck out there, and they had a few days while the convoy, this great convoy, gathered. So they were uh, fishing, or they were writing messages, which they put into into bottles and threw overboard, saying, you know, if you find this 
please pass on my farewell to my family. Many of those bottles washed up just around on the beach and people did send them, but probably a lot sank as well. And then when they saw this girl, and I guess they just started signalling to her and then realised, well, she had access to the, the telegraph, so she could send their final messages. We don't know how many she did send, but Don Watson, when I uh, spoke with him, said that when he was a little boy, he was allowed to take the postcards from the shelf, um, these beautiful old embroidered postcards, and read them. Hmm. And he said there were dozens. So I guess to get back to your question, she represented their families. She represented perhaps for some of them innocence and women, what they in those days were going off to fight for, freedom. But they'd already been at sea, as as I said, for a week or so. And some may have been wondering about their decision. They wouldn't have left home before. They're very young, a lot of them. And it was a big grand adventure. They thought they'd only be away for a few months. And uh, Mm -hmm. maybe after a few days at sea, they were already wondering if they were, (laughs) what, what on earth they were doing. And I guess then it's back to lighthouses. Lighthouses are a symbol of, of, it's a beacon of hope. And if someone's feeling lonely, a lighthouse is a beacon for them. And by extension, Faye, I think, was both of those things as well. She she was a symbol of hope and a beacon and of what they were fighting for, I think. You mentioned waving in addition to taking messages from these men and relaying them to her to their families there is some amazing old footage that we have at the museum here where cinematographers went to her island that that part of the book is true the cinematographers did go across to film the departure so this would have been very exciting for Faye who normally was her dad and the other keeper so there's these cinematographers have come over and there's this footage of the the ships going out past Brexy Island so yes she was should have been waving with all her might I think (laughs) (laughs) while they were in King George Sound she would have been taking the messages and and relaying them or even just waving to them. I mean, she's a young girl there, didn't have a lot. Well, she had a lot of jobs to do. She had a lot of chores that she had to do. But things like this didn't happen every day. (laughs) I don't think the world has ever seen or ever will see a convoy like that because there were 36 troop ships at anchor. There were the, the battleships that were protecting them. And just so many exciting moments. So the New Zealanders, the 10, 10 of the ships were New Zealanders, and the Japanese Ibuki, Japan being our ally in those days, the Japanese Ibuki went across to New Zealand to help es- escort them to King George Sound. And then so the New Zealanders were actually the closest ones to her island, but for the reasons of the story, I, I didn't necessarily highlight that. Everyone would have been feeling very patriotic. Australia has a long Indigenous history, but as far as Federation, when the, the different states joined up to become a country as such, was only 13 years earlier. England was seen as the mother country and uh, everyone was feeling very patriotic. So this big moment where young Australia, the colonial young Australia, was stepping up to go and help the mother country, there's a lot of that kind of historical referencing going on as well and I think she would have been waving a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Man, it's too bad those uh, that film crew didn't take footage of her waving to the ships. Oh, I know. Oh, that would have been so good. That would have been so good. I know. I would have loved that. Um, Yeah. Well, I have to. And also, we didn't have. uh, There were no photographs of Faye. I had to imagine what she looked like, but of a young woman anyway. There were her as an older woman, particularly for the illustrator for Brian. 
he had to imagine what she looked like. And to maintain continuity, we used the children's publisher's niece, Ali, as a model so that he could get the continuity of her features. So then what was really spooky in a great way was that just before the book came out, and it took four years from idea, the research was just really painstaking. Just before the book was being sent to print, we, Don Watson, found a photograph of his mother as a young woman. That's the photograph that is now in the book. But what's really special is that she resembles Ali, the model. So the cover of the book, if you look at the cover of the book and the photo of Faye, there's this uncanny resemblance. And there are, there are a few other strange coincidences that, that I think made this book need to happen. When I went out to, I've been out three times to Breaks the Island, and on the last visit, the film rights have been optioned. So um, it's, a, it's a long, slow process, but who knows? And it doesn't mean it will happen, but I, I do hope it does. So oh. I went out um, with the, the fellow who's bought the rights, who's an Australian living in the U.S., we went out to the building. There's two lighthouse keeper cottages, and one of them, I've just always had a feeling that's where Faye lived, but also there's one particular room that I just get a bit of a feeling for. Anyway, after we that photograph had came to light and we've really looked carefully at that photograph, she's leaning on a very unusual um, planter that you'd put a planter, wooden planter, and since the book's come out, I've been contacted by descendants of other lighthouse keepers and one sent me an email and said, we have the planter that is in that photograph. So I know that that photograph was taken at Breaksea. Up until then, it could have been taken anywhere. So mm-hmm. when I went, I tried to find the exact place that photo might have been taken. And I think I have it where there's a certain area where the plaster and the original brick comes out. You know, things like that are exciting. It's like detective work. Oh, yeah. You mentioned Brian, the illustrator, Brian Simmons. It kind of looks like charcoal sketches. I don't know if they're actually done with charcoal or not. Maybe you can tell me. But is there a reason why that particular style was chosen? Yes. Uh, It's unusual when you're writing a book for children, as I'm sure you realize, so often the, uh, the illustrator is selected to link to the text if it's a soft you know bedtime dreamy kind of story it might be a softer watercolor but many picture books are bright and fun but this book needed something completely different and again Kate Sutherland is a very wise publisher and felt that we needed something something old-fashioned some sketches something that would link to the story very hard to find an illustrator who has that style who does children's books so she knew that Brian gives classes. She knew he works with charcoal. And so she approached him and he hadn't done a book before, but he um, was really interested in the idea. And he did, as you as you said, he, he only uses a stick of charcoal and an eraser. And the illustrations are huge. And so he he can, if he gets it right, he can do it in about an hour each one. He doesn't always get each one right but it's like watching a magician he's just bringing he's got this stick of charcoal and he's just creating this incredible illustration it's he's so talented um i know i've heard we've done talks together and sometimes people say oh you're so lucky to be that talented and he'll say look it's 50 years of hard work to make that luck (laughs) so he's been he's been an artist for a long time and he since has put out some books of his own about the beaches and the rivers here in, in Western Australia um, using colour 
this time. But he's, his artwork has added such depth to the story and I'm sure that's a huge factor in making the books so special because he's he just brings out something, an extra layer, but it also marries really well with the text and the old photographs. I was just I was just flipping through the book and my favorite personal favorite illustration is on page 75. It has uh, Faye by a window. Looks like she's sewing by the window and the text is about uh, New Year's Eve. It says she oh, sat up yeah. late watching the Al- Albany <laughs> watching the Albany lights flicker on the water. Uh, yes. And uh, which may reminds me of how poetic a lot of the the writing is. There's some really, a lot of really beautiful phrases in there. Oh, thank you. That's very kind. I really like the page where, oh, there's a couple of pages, of course, but where she's looking up at the stars um, because in that photo she really looks like, I don't have it on hand, but the the photograph of Ali, that's particularly beautiful. And this this old archival photo of the kangaroo. Yes, I love that. Australian soldiers with the kangaroo uh, below the Egyptian pyramids. Yeah. That. That photo was what led me to do the second book because I thought, what on earth is that kangaroo doing in the pyramids? And it's from the Australian War um, Museum, memorial, so it's it's not doctored. Clearly, it's a it's. I was curious at how how many mascots the soldiers took, and then when I went to Gallipoli, it was oh, really poignant to then see. There's the photos of the Australian soldiers um, with their little mascots. But then in the Turkish trenches, they also have got their own little dogs and rabbits and that these men, that the animal mascots brought them, I guess, some degree of comfort to have unconditional love from a a little animal perhaps or or something to remind them of home. You obviously researched life at lighthouses in that era quite a bit. Your research shows uh, it all seemed very authentic to me. How deeply did you get into that subject, the subject of lighthouse life for families at that time? Well, each lighthouse, as as your series shows, it's different. And uh, I've just finished reading Shona Riddell's fabulous book, Guiding Lights, which yes. and I heard your your terrific interview with her, which led me to the book, which was great. It, it's different depending on your lighthouse. Some of those lighthouses seemed fearsome. <laughs> Whereas Breaksy Island is, look, in winter, it can get wild out there, but we're not talking about those, you know, 20 metre waves where that doesn't, we're not getting that. However, if if saltwater gets into their water tanks, then, um, you know, they're in trouble because that's their drinking supply. So there are things like that. So I wanted to get across there and be at the island but it's a nature reserve so you're not allowed to go there you have to seek permission from parks and wildlife at the time so the only way I could get there was by volunteering by knowing somebody and volunteering to then carry wood all weekend for the fellow who was re-roofing the cottages because they'd uh, they would be lost to history over time they're crumbling and so there was a project the money of course is a lot to get building materials out there by helicopter. So I volunteered to go and help just be a labourer basically for a weekend and carry wood. So getting across there was really important. Even when I was there, I wasn't allowed to wander around. They're really strict. So the only way I could actually see the island was with that builder taking me on certain paths. They're very protective, which is great. It's a, it's a nesting site and um, historic site. But we did sleep in, in the old cottage, which in a, in a swag bed swag we call it I don't know if you've got the name of a swag is 
like waltzing Matilda, carrying a swag on your back. It's like a roll-up bed. Uh, a roll-up bed. I'm not sure if we have yeah. a, another name for it. <laughs> it's like them. a canvas. We just call it a swag. So we we were, had swags, and so we just had swags in the lighthouse, so, you know, different rooms. There was also um, a couple who'd gone over to do some other restorative garden work and so that was how I got across. So even though getting there was really, um, well, getting there was interesting because we went across on this little boat and uh, to get onto the island, the only way is via, there's a jetty that hangs out with a, a drop ladder, like a swinging caving ladder, say. And so you have to get as close to the ladder as possible on the boat in a big swell um, or in a regular swell and then jump onto the ladder and then scramble up this swinging ladder to get onto the jetty. I'm a reasonable swimmer, so I wasn't too worried about, you know, I guess I could have had another goal if I'd fallen in. But uh, once you're on the jetty, then it's about a half-hour walk up the zigzag track to the lighthouses. So just walking up there was really interesting for me because Faye each month would walk down with her donkey to collect supplies down the same path. And uh, if the supply boat, if the sea was too rough, the supply boat didn't come, so she had to go and shoot mutton birds and make soup. Just getting out there and going up to the old lighthouse, which isn't huge by lighthouse, it's quite squat. It was built by, not many buildings are built by convicts in Western Australia, but this one is. I think what was the most, what made the most impression was how you're surrounded by sea and sky and you really are like you're in another world. There's just blue everywhere. There's blue sea, there's blue sky and an island that you could, it's a reasonable size. You can take at least half an hour to walk around the whole thing. It's it's quite a nice, um, and there's all these mutton bird burrows. And at night uh, they come flying in where they've been fishing off the continental shelf and just fill the sky with squawking and squawking. It's uh, So those being out there and having those experiences helped me bring her island to life. Um, there really is a place called Seal Rock and you can see the, the whales from there in the season. The whales just go right past and just salt, there's salt on everything from the breeze. So things like that, looking back across to the town and feeling you really are cut off out there, but in a beautiful way, I was really happy to be cut off for a few days. Um, yeah. yeah, lovely. So I've been out sure. three times altogether. Mm -hmm. The second time was during the commemoration, the 100-year commemoration of the, the troops leaving Albany, and there was some a lot of media attention. So a, a TV program called Destinations WA wanted to to do an interview though everyone was everyone was looking for an angle and a girl on a lighthouse waving goodbye to the troops was a good angle I think for a, it's a different angle right to the soldiers so they said um would you like to come out to break sea with us in the helicopter and we'll interview you out there it's like uh, yes <laughs> of course I would like to do that but the day we were to go out was incredibly windy and we weren't sure if the helicopter could even land so it went round and round the lighthouse oh, I don't know how many times until the very skillful pilot managed to land further down the hill on a bit of granite but it, it meant that I got to see the lighthouse from above with a helicopter in a helicopter and then the storyline was so lovely these guys I was up at the cottage and it was like well we're out of Braxy Island and oh here's Diane Wolfer and it was it was such a funny storyline because of course it had taken us a long time to get out there I didn't just happen to be there <laughs> But, yeah, so now you can go in summer, you can hire a helicopter if you want. It's obviously expensive. But you can 
buddy up with some other people and, and all go out. And the, the pilot has the keys to the cottages, so he can take you into the cottages, which is mm-hmm. pretty special. Yeah. Would you say that doing Lighthouse Girl and also your experiences with Break Sea Island, are you, do you consider yourself a lighthouse buff? Did it make it into a lighthouse buff? Oh, goodness. When I listen to your, your previous podcast, I, I think buff would not be. I, I mean, you've got some seriously people who really know their lighthouses. I don't, I love them. I, I find that like your listeners and the people who I've heard you interview, there is something so special about lighthouses. They're the beacon, the hope they're evocative they're in really interesting places and you're really out there with the weather in a way that most of us in our homes you're not out there with the weather like that so all of those aspects uh it's wild there's a wildness to it that I guess not many of us get to experience anymore so I'm I love lighthouses I'm passionate about them I don't know that I know a lot about them Um, that's okay you you just convinced me that you're a lighthouse buff from the things you just said (laughs) got the emotional essence of them that's more important than knowing the names of hundreds of lighthouses right why do you think it's important that we remember Fei Hao oh okay she was a young woman at a place in a really important historic moment in time just the very fact of lighthouses and where they are and what the what the nature of the keepers what they do is heroic and special so I think Faye adds to that long list of incredible women who've been involved in, in lighthouse keeping. And as her mother wasn't there, she would have been really instrumental in helping her father and the other keeper, and not just with the domestic duties, which of course she did, but also with signalling to ships as they came in. Albany was the first point of Australia for shipping. So if you've come from you know, India or Europe, Albany's the first place you get to. And so there was a lot of interest in which ships were coming in, which was then relayed across Australia. So I think it's just that she was an ordinary woman. I think that's what's so special. She was just an ordinary girl who was there at an extraordinary moment in time and witnessed that, but also witnessed it with such youthful, joyous exuberance. She was on the cusp of womanhood herself. So she, you, you've got all of the exuberance of a a younger child, but the maturity of a woman um, to understand the significance of it. So it was a real crossroad in her life. It was a crossroad in Australian history. Yeah, I think for those reasons, it's special. And for me, if if I can spark interest in history, particularly in our youth, uh, I write mostly for children, although my books are largely read by adults as well. I think if I, I'm really passionate about bringing history alive for young readers in a way that's not didactic, that's actually just fun, that it's a good story first and that they they just want to read the story and then they find out some other interesting things along the way that they might not have known uh, that may spark their curiosity to find out more. Then if, if that happens, then I'm happy. <laughs> I am speaking with Don Watson at his home in Bibra Lake, which is a suburb of Perth in Western Australia. And along with Don uh, are his wife, Peg, and their daughter, Denise. Hi, everybody. So nice Hi. to have you with me today. Thank you so much. Hi, Jeremy. 
So Don, first of all, I understand that you remember being quite young and actually reading the cards and letters that were written to your mother from the soldiers overseas during World War One. Well, the cards were kept in a drawer. Uh, well, she, she looked after those cards like the back of her hand. She really enjoyed them. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, somehow or other, those cards disappeared. Yeah, well, that's a and, shame. Uh, of course, they never shown up. There were, what, a few dozen of those, something like that? Oh, must have been easy. Yeah, tied up with a piece of ribbon. Oh, were they? The they were the like the bunch of cards were tied together with with ribbon. Very much, yeah. Oh, that's nice. Uh, if we could talk a little bit about Diane Wolfer's book, Lighthouse Girl. I'm wondering, Don, uh, how did you feel about that book? Well, I thought it was a very good book, but not having a knowledge of the background, that's nothing to compare with. But I enjoyed the book. It it gave me a sort of bit of insight into what my mother had to put up with on the island. There was no connection after time. So they relied on on a a boat coming out to the island with supplies and so forth. And, of course, if there was a bit of rough weather, because the boat couldn't berth, the difficulty of of getting across that stretch of water was uh, quite treacherous because Braxley Island was out really open to the uh, open to the ocean the southern ocean so you only had to get a bad weather bit of bad weather coming in from uh, from the south mm-hmm. and that cut off communication virtually yeah. and they had to make do with what we had or yeah. what they had I, I wasn't there yeah you were you were born later I was born much later did your mother talk about her lighthouse days much I don't remember mum talking too much about the lighthouse other than different things that they used to do of uh, actual fishing or shooting because they used to at times they used to get out and shoot uh, animals for, mm-hmm. for their food. Don, I was wondering if did you get to see the, the stage play uh, of Lighthouse Girl that was based on the book? I did, yes. I was very impressed. Mm-hmm. Very, very impressed with the way it was all put together. So they must have uh, been really happy when the p- people uh, putting on the play that you you went to see it. That was one of my, one of the things I I look forward to. We saw it twice. Yeah. Don, I don't know if you have any thoughts about why. Why do you think the story of your mother and what she did during World War One? Why do you think that's so interesting to people? What what is it about that? Do you think? My mother was receiving messages via Morse code and signal flags from the soldiers passing onto the mainland where they would have been sent to other states. It was very thoughtful of the soldiers to remember my mother as a girl on the lighthouse in Albany. Oh, I think what she did meant so much to those, those men. It's not just the messages that she relayed, but I just imagine these men leaving home to go so far away. And of course, a lot of them never returned. And for a lot of them, the last sight of Australia was your mother waving from Breaksea Island from the lighthouse. That's right. Denise, I don't know if, if you would like to, to say anything more about kind of the family legacy. How do you, how do you feel about being the, the granddaughter of the famous lighthouse girl? I feel very honoured being one of Faye's granddaughters. Faye actually ended up having three living children. Unfortunately, two boys died in very young age. 
So Nana had nine grandchildren, so I'm one of those. And just from remembering her from um, times that, you know, we used to go and visit, she's always cooking, making cakes and something like that. So we always, you know, loved having um, sponge cakes that she used to make. Mum just wanted to say something. Oh, sure, absolutely. Peg? Uh, Don's mother was was very caring. I I know when Denise was a baby, she'd be crying like mad, but Don's mother could pick her up and stop her from crying. (laughs) Another thing I want you to know is that Don and I went to Breaksea Island by helicopter a few years ago. Oh, and Don was so thrilled. I'll let him tell you about it. I didn't realize that you did that. That's great. Yeah, what was that like, Don? To be able to walk on the ground that my mother had walked on 100 years previous. I was only there for a short period of time because we only had an hour to be there and off again because the chopper was paid for by the group. No, we paid for it. Oh, we did? Yes. Helicopters are expensive. I know that. They are, yeah. But that, what a great experience. That's so, I'm so happy you got to do that. The island is surrounded by water. There are no beaches at all. It is very, very steep. I don't know how they fished. On the island, there was a crevice in the rock and there was a, an orchid who was down in the bottom, in the, in the, uh, somehow or other. That orchid had, had grown and they lowered mum down on a rope to go and pick the, the orchid and bring it back up to the surface again. She was quite young at that stage, quite an experience because just being lowered down on a rope was yeah. enough to put anyone off. <laughs> Sounds pretty scary. The island, the island is really a stony rock. Well, life at those places was something most of us, you know, can't can't imagine these days. It was really nice of Diane to actually come and talk with mum and dad at different times to get not actually Faye's life story, but different aspects of what was available on the island and and that sort of thing, you know, uh, just from their experiences of seeing what, what was there. You know, I know there's a lot in Lighthouse Girl that's true and a lot that's, uh, you know, there's artistic license, which is what writers always do. Yeah. But I yeah. thought Diane did a great job of kind of blending those she, things. And She did. There was, you know, she mixed it with a lot of um, things that we already know about the soldiers and, you know, going off to war and that sort of thing. But she intertwined it in such a way that you thought, well, here's this poor girl on an island, um, but then all these men come along and, and um, it sort of opened up, her, I think, opened up her eyes that there were other people out there. And mm-hmm. she was able to put her skills to work with, you know, the signalling and Morse code and uh, being able to chat with somebody else. The basic idea, what you just said about communicating with those men as they left for the war and everything, it's 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 a great story and it's so emotional. And uh you know, it's supposed yeah. to be a children's book, but I don't mind saying that I cried when I wrote it or when I read it. <laughs> Diane said that a lot of adults tell her the same thing. That's right. That's right. Don Watson and your wife, uh, Peg, and your daughter, uh, Denise Rafferty, I want to thank you all so much for spending some time with me. It's really an honor and a pleasure to speak with you. Everything about your mother's story, Don, is just, just fascinating. 
And I feel very lucky to get a chance to talk with you too. So thank you all so much. Thank you very much anyway for taking the effort to, uh, to get contact with us. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you all. Take care. Will do. Thank and you. you take care as well. And uh, thank you very much for the, the meeting. It was lovely. Yeah. Bye-bye. Diane Wolfer's book, Lighthouse Girl, and its sequels, Light Horse Boy and In the Lamplight, are available from Amazon and other online booksellers. You can also read more about Diane and her books at dianewolfer.com. That's Diane with two N's, D-I-A-N-N-E-W-O-L-F-E-R.com. Next, we're going to listen to a recent conversation I had with Mike Vogel, president of the U.S. Lighthouse Society, and Jeff Gales, executive director of the Society. We started by talking about the core missions of the Society, but most of the discussion was about the domestic and international tours the Society offers each year. Mike Vogel retired as editorial page editor of the Buffalo News in 2011 after a 41-year journalism career that included three decades as a reporter and feature writer. Mike was the organizer and founding president of the Buffalo Lighthouse Association, which began restoration of Buffalo, New York's historic 1833 lighthouse in 1985. Mike is also the author or co-author of five books on maritime history, as well as Buffalo and Niagara Falls local history. Mike is a longtime board member and has been president of the U.S. Lighthouse Society since 2020. As executive director of the U.S. Lighthouse Society, Jeff Gales is responsible for the organization's overall management and operation, and he supervises the Society's administrative staff. Among many other things that he does, he's also the editor of the Keeper's Log, the Society's quarterly journal. Our regular listeners know that he has co-hosted some episodes of this podcast. So let's listen to my conversation with Jeff Gales and Mike Vogel now. I'm speaking this afternoon uh, with Jeff Gales, Executive Director of the U.S. Lighthouse Society, and Mike Vogel, President of the Board of the U.S. Lighthouse Society. And we're going to talk about uh, everything the U.S. Lighthouse Society does. No, actually, that's impossible in one one sitting here. But thanks so much, uh, Mike and Jeff, for being with me. Pleasure. Starting out, what do you see as the overarching mission of the U.S. Lighthouse Society? Well, I think it's it's pretty simple. It's it's to preserve the heritage of all of the lighthouses that the United States built through the years, not just the history, not just the structures themselves, although that's all part of it, but the heritage, what they mean, what they meant, what they will mean in the future. And everything we do sort of revolves around that. And there are just so many initiatives that we've started uh, that we maintain from the first 35, 36 years of the society. Our ultimate goal is to be the place everybody goes for all things Lighthouse. Jeff, anything you want to add to that? Well, I think that Mike said it very clearly. We like to also uh, remember the uh, human aspects to Lighthouses because they're all becoming automated. So there was a definitive human connection. And that history from 1789 to 1939, when the Lighthouse Service was active is a part of American history that most people don't know about. And uh, certainly uh, how the Coast Guard uh, took it over and continued to maintain lighthouses and still does to this day. Um, All of that is important to our mission to to preserve it. So in in addition to what Mike said, you know, the human factor is something um, I especially enjoy partaking in. I couldn't agree more with uh, everything both of you said. 
Do you think there is one specific thing, or maybe maybe it's a couple of specific things that the society does that you think is the key ingredient, the essential part of uh, fulfilling the mission? Well, Germany, at, at the heart of it all, we're a storytelling organization. We're not, although we do have some lighthouses that we're preserving and managing just to keep our skin in the game, basically. We're an umbrella organization, a national level organization, and we're acutely aware of the need to consolidate and preserve information, which is, and oftentimes just ephemeral things, so that they're available for the storytellers of the future, as well as what we do today. So I think one of the very key things we do is to develop the website and archives and the entire digital database that we have. We have physical documents and books and uh, drawings that we have shared physically with the Mariner's Museum in Virginia. That's where the hard copy, if you want to call it that, library is right now. But we also have a digital archive that's way past four and a half terabytes. And a lot of that is coming online. We're bringing more of it online so we can be the place. Uh, It incorporates the National Archives. It incorporates uh, the collections of, of longtime researchers in lighthouse history and heritage. It incorporates a lot of different sources. And we're trying to make it easy for research now and in the future so that the stories are preserved, the information is preserved. And I kind of think that's at the heart of what we do. The rest of it, it's education. The, the three pillars that we, we work off of are, are the heritage, uh, education, and preservation. And all three of those come back to saving the stories of lighthouses, both the technical stories and the human stories of lighthouses and what they meant to America and its maritime history, uh, what they meant to its overall history, and what they can be moving forward as reminders of our heritage and beacons for our future. Yeah, just expanding on what Mike said, we're doing all this in the background, what the society's core is, you know, all the preservation and and education and what have you. But one of the main things that we do as well is communicating all of that to the world at large. And so that's why, like Mike mentioned, the, the website is so critically important as it's become now a research tool for people. The, uh, the journal we produce is hugely important. All the news that we post is important, all the digital publications we put out there. And of course, the tours um, are really important for us to communicate everything that we do with everyone. And, uh, and not only is that important for our membership, but it's important for us to keep communicating with people outside of the society to draw in new members and, and new interests to keep it a viable nonprofit organization. So communication is something we uh, strive at doing better every year. Mm-hmm. Our flagship publication is and always has been the Keeper's Log, a quarterly scholarly type journal um, that is uh, is about history and heritage and, and several other things now. It's one of our publications. It's the flagship publication. And and to me, it's interesting as a a former, as a writer and a former journalist and and publications guy, in the beginning, the Keeper's Log sort of supported the archives and the database. And now it's the other way around. The database and the archives support the Keeper's Log. Um, There's a flow of information from one to the other. 
Keeper's Log is kind of the voice we use to, to tell the stories, one of the voices we use to tell the stories. We've just got so much going right now in so many areas from preservation, from technical stuff like starting to study the growing threat from sea level rise and climate change on lighthouse properties around the country to the tours we do, which are an important revenue source for the society, but also we do them for the educational outreach that they they are. And, uh, and we do those domestically and internationally. We're integrating far more uh, thoroughly into the overall National Maritime Heritage Preservation Community uh, dealing with other museums and 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 doing so much else, and the key to all of that, uh, and and our ability to do that, and hopes our hopes of doing even more, is our membership. Our society membership is, I'm happy to say, stable, but we would really like to grow it uh, so that we can do more. And and for two reasons: one is yes, it provides revenue. Uh, but also, I do lobbying um, for maritime heritage funding um, at the national level, and numbers count. Well, you, know, you know, I don't speak with my voice. I speak with the voice of 3,000 members. I'd love to speak with the voice of 10,000 members. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it gets heard. And if we want to further maritime preservation as a reminder of who we are, who we are as a people and who we were as a people, who we can be as a people – then that's an important aspect of the federal government. And we need to keep telling that story and pushing hard for it. And communicating uh, with our members in the outside world, it's not just a matter of providing information and saying, here it is, take a look. We really strive to uh, make it enjoyable to learn about. You know, we have an entertainment value. You know, the, the, we want people to be engaged with what we're doing. And we put in a lot of effort to how we format our communications to make them enjoyable to to read or to view or what have you. And that's exactly where the tours fit in because uh, that's a really great opportunity to not only communicate with members, but actually with lighthouse groups and individuals all over the world that we visit domestically and internationally. And uh, it's that's the perfect marriage of education and enjoyment and entertainment uh, the tours are. So that fits mm-hmm. right in with what we're trying to do. Mike, you started by saying uh, the USLHS is a storytelling uh, organization, and uh, certainly tours uh, kind of uh, fit into that. It's another way of telling people these stories. I do want to circle back to uh, the research catalog and the keeper's log and some of the other things you talked about, and I'm really glad you brought up membership because that's such a a key part of all this. But let's let's talk some more about tours. How long has the USLHS been giving tours? How did it all start? The Lighthouse Society, if you talk to Wayne Wheeler, our founder of our organization, the Lighthouse Tours were basically something that happened by accident. They got a group together and they did one domestic tour, I believe, to Maine. And then the next year, they would, and by the way, that Maine tour was hugely successful. We had more people interested than we could possibly accommodate. Of course, the way the tours operate and everything have evolved over the years, but in that beginning phase, which I believe was in the mid-1980s. And then right after that, Wayne was communicated or started communication with uh, Russia and the Russia Russian Maritime uh, Organization. I don't remember what the name of the organization is called, the Russian Navy, maybe. In any case, 
that turned into the first international tour. It was the second tour that the U.S. Idol Society ever operated, and they received the red carpet treatment. Uh, and at that time, it was still the Soviet Union. Right. And, and it was hugely popular. And the, the tours just kind of evolved from there. They started offering more domestic trips and always would have one or two international trips for people to join. And although it wasn't a important or even planned part of the U.S. Lighthouse Society, uh, it, they, they, the tours evolved into a uh, certainly very important aspect of what we do. And actually, as I said before, how we communicate with the with our members and, and other lighthouse groups around the country. What makes the society's tours so unique and special? Well, I think it's basically the, the opportunity to visit lighthouses and not just to visit lighthouses, which people can do on their own, obviously, but in a lot of cases to get special access, uh, tour, get admission into places that the general public doesn't always get to go. And one of the things that I think is important about our lighthouse tours is that there's a real effort to see more than lighthouses, to see other things of interest along the way, which is part sightseeing, but it's also a way of integrating regional history into the lighthouses in that region. You could see the linkages between light stations and what else was happening in the local community whether it's another historic site that may or may not have a maritime connection or just something that people also want to see. If you're going to Greek lighthouses, you probably want to see the Acropolis in Athens, you know, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So they're really interesting and comprehensive tours with a, with a focus on lighthouses and access that you normally wouldn't get. And I'm in, there are also tours that go to places you normally wouldn't get. We've got a, a tour on the plan planning now for Patagonia next year. We're doing Iceland and Northern Spain this year. They're both of those tours are full. We try it for a balance of domestic and international tours. And there's a lot of research underway on ways we can do shorter tours to accommodate families or grandparents and grandkids, quicker tours, less expensive, but just as focused on lighthouses. And I've kind of sort of a, maybe I'm letting a cat out of the bag here, Jeff, but I've tasked Jeff with coming up with an expedition flag for the society. <laughs> Exotic lighthouses. We should have the group picture that we always take uh, at these things. Somebody, we should task our group participants uh, to have pick two people to hold the expedition society <laughs> flag. I love it. I love it. Just as we were there. Keep in mind that when the society first started operating these trips and planning them, uh, lighthouse access was much more difficult. You know, back in the late, mid to late 80s, even early 90s, a, a lot of lighthouses that are open now were not open to the public. So access was a huge part of why these tours became more popular. People wanted to get inside them. They wanted to, uh, you know, basically feel what it was like to be a lighthouse keeper and, and, and experience that, that life uh, in essence. Uh, but as years moved on, like Mike mentioned, access to lighthouses have become more open, especially ones that you can drive to here in the United States. And so um, whenever we can offer a special visit to a light that's still off limits for the most part, those are always really popular trips. And the other thing about our tours, in my opinion, is that we bring together people who share a common interest. So if you go to a a European tour to Italy, let's say, well, you know, 
A third of the group might be interested in, in the historic landmarks. Some might be interested in, in art or some might be interested in whatever. And there's never really that cohesion. But with Lighthouse Tours, we all share this common passion for whatever aspect of lighthouses you love. We all share that. And we're all photographers and we all love documenting our trips. To, to me, the, the beauty of the U.S. Lighthouse Society Tours, we're bringing together people with the similar interests. And there's always great friendships that develop and bonds that occur. And it lasts far beyond Lighthouse Society Tours. To me, that's a really important aspect of our trips that uh, is important to mention. Speaking of lighthouses that are normally off limits to the public, we're actually, people are going to hear this later, but we're speaking on May 11th. Tomorrow, I'm leaving for Long Island, New York, and I'll be leading a a week-long tour there. And a couple of lighthouses we're we're seeing are are usually off limits. One is Eaton's Neck, which is one of the oldest lighthouse towers in the country. And the Coast Guard Auxiliary is opening it up for us. And I'm told that this may be the first group tour ever at Eaton's Neck Lighthouse, at least in a very long time. Was Eaton's Eaton's Neck one of the lighthouses that was chartered by George Washington? Yes. Yeah, it was actually built in 17. I love, see, to me, the storytelling of a lighthouse like Eaton's Neck is so interesting. Think that we're going to be visiting a building where George Washington, the father of our country, felt it was important to build a lighthouse there. It's to mm-hmm. me that's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. And it was just renovated by the Coast Guard. So we're going to get to see that. And we're actually it's got an active Fresnel lens. We're going to the top. And it's just uh, it's pretty exciting. And uh, I also wanted to mention talking about uh special aspects of these these tours. Sometimes there are sort of bonus personalities that take part in the tours. I did the Ireland tour in July, and we got to meet a couple of former lighthouse keepers. Gerald Butler, who wrote a book about it, uh, gave us a tour at his lighthouse and, and so forth. Those kind of things help make it special as well. Bob Muller, Long Island lighthouse expert, is going to join us for parts of this Long Island tour. Uh, right. And up. Bob is actually our former, well, he actually is the president again of our Long Island chapter. Right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that's Bob Trapani in Maine has helped with some of the tours in Maine, narrating cruises and so forth. So uh, I really think those things help make them special as well. Mm-hmm. So, Jeff, you've done a lot of the tours over the years. Uh, you've led some of them. Do you have any favorite tour? Any uh, can be more than one, uh, but don't get too. I'm sure there's a lot. <laughs> but what have been the most memorable tours, uh, USLHS tours you've done over the years? Well, one that pops into my mind is fairly early on, we were trying to pick out locations internationally that we had been to before. It's very easy to, you know, go to England or go to France and go to the major cities in Europe and and, and do lighthouses in those areas. But, you know, where have we gone before? How can we attract maybe a few more extra people or those who have traveled with us who have already been there and done that. So we we noodled it for a little while and came up with a really interesting tour to uh, the islands, the Northern Islands of Scotland, the Orkney and Shetland Islands. Now we've just recently done that tour again, but the very first time we did that trip, I led it with my wife, Melissa, and we planned it and everything. And it was just a fantastic experience. I mean, from the point we landed in Glasgow to the the ride, the bus ride up to the Land's End at the northern tip of Scotland, an overnight ferry ride where we passed by, you know, a bunch of lighthouses. Everything about the Orkney and Shetland Islands 
was fascinating. I mean, of course, the lighthouses are amazing, mostly Stevenson lighthouses. They have things like standing stones. I'll never forget, um, they predate Stonehenge. They're, they're very, very old. But you can walk right up to them and touch them. I mean, you walk all around them. I mean, the, the, the security is not as tight as it is like in Stonehenge, which is a major tourist destination. So um, the, the food was just amazing. The Orkney ice cream was memorable. Um, we got out onto these the most amazing lighthouses uh, on these islands. One of them was, and I know I'm a little rambling here a little bit, but one of the most memorable lighthouses we visited on that tour was North Ronald Sea, which was a ferry ride. Now the ferry ride we took from Orkney to get there because of weather was the first ferry that had been allowed to go there in three weeks because the weather had been too bad to get out there. So we got lucked out with weather. When we got there, I went to the top of the, this massive lighthouse where the people met us and were very, very warm and welcoming. That was part of the reason why this tour is so amazing. The warm reception that the Lighthouse Society group got. And I think that happens very often on not only domestic, on international tours, but on domestic ones too. Anyways, I'm at the top of this lighthouse on the exterior gallery, which of course we're allowed to do in Scotland, not so much in the United States, but we're out there outside and maybe 200 feet up. And I looked around the island and it was all these sheep knee deep in the, all around the island because you can kind of see most of the island around from where you are. And I asked the attendant, I said, what is going on with these sheep in the water? Well, he says, they're kelp eating sheep. And it's the only place in the world that has kelp eating sheep. They try to transplant these things other places to eat grass and whatever, but no, they can't. They, they have been evolved over these years to eat that salty, very nutritious kelp. And how else would I have found that except if I was on a lighthouse tour? I never would have gone to North Ronaldsea. I never <laughs> would have experienced kelp eating sheep. These are the surprises that you get when you go on a lighthouse tour. The tours take you to places that you never would ever consider going as a regular tourist. Yeah, oh, that's that, that's great, that stuff. And uh, wildlife is often a part of the, the tours, uh, either on purpose or accidentally. You do cruises. Uh, often there are cruises included, and you might see whales and dolphins and interesting seabirds and things. And Scotland, you and I were on the 2017 tour, tour to uh, the Edinburgh area, uh, mm -hmm. southeast Scotland, and down the east coast of England. That was a great tour. And I'm sure you remember, were you on the boat to Bass Rock Lighthouse in Scotland? With, it's absolutely covered with gannets, like 100,000 gannets. I didn't go on that trip, but I saw the pictures. <laughs> it was unbelievable. Uh, the, the noise, uh, it was even worth putting up with the smell. It was just amazing. And then uh, you, I know you were on uh, Isle of May, which had like 100,000 nesting puffins. Right. So, yeah, it, it's in uh, a lot of a lot of lighthouse people are birders as well. So that is a bonus on a lot of these tours. Well, I, uh, Mike had mentioned that um, this very point that the lighthouse tours take you to places you would normally go to. And that mm -hmm. really hits it right on the head. I mean, we want to see lighthouses, but lighthouses are located in very unique geographic locations or yes. geographic areas. And so you get all this other stuff. That's wonderful when you go visit a lighthouse, no matter where it is in the world. Yeah, lighthouses can be a window into not just history, but but wildlife and beautiful uh, geography and everything else. So, yeah. uh, absolutely. So, uh, Mike, you touched on the Patagonia tour for next year. Anything else we want to mention about tours that are upcoming in the next year or two? Yeah, we're doing a, a Caribbean cruise. We're, that's a, that's a sort of an experimental thing for us. 
2024, we'll also be doing Denmark and Germany. Uh, but it occurred to me while you guys were talking that there's one other example of things you could get on a lighthouse tour that uh, maybe you wouldn't get anywhere else. And that's the Northern California tour, which was going to be this year, but got pushed back to 2024 because the helicopter broke. There was going to be a helicopter ride out to St. George Reef, uh, an iconic lighthouse in its own right. Mm-hmm. And we can't do that this year because the helicopter is not in operation. Well, yeah, maybe you could do that if you're a single tourist going around, charter your own helicopter and go out to a remote island uh, light station to do a flyby or whatever. But we do that kind of stuff for you uh, routinely on these tours. And that's kind of an example of that. Yeah. And the Ireland tour last July, we did a helicopter ride over the Cliffs of Moher and the Aran Islands and three lighthouses in the Aran Islands. That was absolutely spectacular. So uh, just going back to what Mike Mike mentioned about cruises, um, the cruise ship idea is becoming more popular as time goes by. And our very first time we did that was when we led the first trip to Hawaii, the Hawaiian Islands. And Norwegian Cruise Lines has a a run that takes you to all the ports of call on the main islands in the Hawaii chain. And it worked out perfectly. Our hotel was on the ship. We spent time um, looking at lighthouses, doing shore excursions everywhere we went. And it was wonderful and it was so successful. And since then, we've done a few other uh, lighthouse tours that involve cruises, smaller vessels. We did one tour, which was everybody was housed on a restored tugboat. And this Iceland tour that we have going this year is actually a cruise ship based. Now, it's not a giant cruise ship. It's a smaller one, but very nice, very luxurious. And uh, that's going to literally circumnavigate the entire country, which we've never, ever done before. Mm -hmm. So this idea for going on the cruise to the Caribbean, it's going to be great because it'll give everybody the opportunity to not have to unpack and stay in the hotel, which is the cruise ship and be able to go on these shore excursions to see all the lights. It's a great format that we're really embracing as of late. For more about the United States Lighthouse Society and its tours, along with all the other things the Society offers, check out uslhs.org. I just led a USLHS tour on Long Island, New York last week. I've said on this podcast in the past that I was embarrassed that I had never visited the lighthouses at Montauk and Fire Island, but now I can check those off my bucket list. The staff and volunteers of those lighthouses and all the others we visited on Long Island could not have been nicer. There are still a couple of tours coming up this year that have space available. Right. For domestic tours, there's Northern Lake, Michigan, which will be happening July 15th to the 23rd. For international tours, there's one in Nova Scotia and Prince Edward Island, August 12th to the 30th. Next year, there's a Lake Erie tour in April, an Outer Banks tour in May, Northern California in September, and a Southern Maine tour in October. Next year's international tours include a Caribbean cruise in February, a Denmark and Germany tour in June, and a Patagonia tour in November. Yeah, I've done a couple of the international tours, and they are among the best experiences of my life. I can't recommend them enough. A reminder to our listeners, if you listen using Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us. We will be back with a new episode next week. For now, to all our regular listeners and our new ones, thank you for listening and keep a good light. Keep a good light.